Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Say not thou what is the cause that the former days were better than these, for thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense, but the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. Years ago, there was a radio commentator, I guess that's what you'd call him, that I really liked. I'd listen to him almost every day. His name was Paul Harvey. Y'all are familiar with him. And he had a saying of people that he would talk about sometimes, and he would say, he left the woodpile a little higher than he found it. And I've always liked that, and I've always wanted to be that kind of person who leaves the woodpile just a little bit higher then I found it. When my life is over, I want people to be able to say, well, he did a good job and he, he gave more than he took. Amen. We're going to talk about leaving a legacy this morning. And I know these verses as we read them may sound a little bit confusing. And I've spent several weeks now in just trying to get this message together and saying, what are you talking about, Solomon? Lord, what's Solomon talking about here? And we're going to try to look at this today. Remember, first of all, that the chapter and verse divisions were not there in the original writing. They're put there for our benefit by the translators that the book of Ecclesiastes is one continuous book. So the first few verses of chapter 7 tie in with chapter 6. And if you look back to chapter 6 in verse 10, Solomon says this, God says this through Solomon, that which hath been is named already and is known that it is man, neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. Seeing that there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? For who knoweth what is good for man in this life, all the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow? For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? First of all, Solomon says, God's mightier than men. You can't debate with God. Job found that out in the ninth chapter of Job, didn't he? He said, you know, if he were a man, I could argue with him. But I can't argue with him. We can't argue with him. We can't debate with God because God is mightier than man. And so in verse 11, Solomon says, there's so many things that are vanity. Who knows what's best for man? Who knows what is better for man? Then in the first part of Verse 12, he says, who knows what's good for man in this life? And then in the last part of verse 12, who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Well, the answer to these questions is obvious. God knows what's best for man. God knows what's good for man. God knows what is going to happen, what the future holds, and what will come after us. And so 
then we have the question, well, well, what or how is man the better off? And that one word better is the word that we're going to look at as we go through these verses. Because I believe it's eight times in just these few short verses, the word better is used. In the first 10 verses of chapter 7, the word better is used by Solomon as he writes here in Ecclesiastes. Again, who knows what's better for man in this world? Obviously, God does, and Solomon's about to tell us. Now, it's important to note that chapter 7 and 8 of Ecclesiastes are called the wisdom chapters. Solomon is going to impart some wisdom to us as we go through the 7th and 8th chapters. The title of this message is Leaving a Legacy. I said I want to be that kind of individual that leaves the woodpile a little higher than I found it. I want to leave a legacy. I want to leave something for those who come after me. Now, when we talk about a legacy, we remember that a legacy is just something that's left behind. Ecclesiastes, remember, is written in the latter years of Solomon. He has written Proverbs. He's written Song of Solomon. Now, in his latter years, he's writing this book of Ecclesiastes. And he's thinking about leaving a legacy because what happens when we get older? See, when you're young, you don't think about leaving a legacy too often, do you? You just think about living. You think about life. But as you start to get older, you think about the family that one day you're going to leave behind. You think about those who will remember you and you think about how they are going to remember you. You know, we don't want to end up like the man in chapter 6, verse 3, who didn't even get a decent burial because the way that his, even his children wouldn't pay for a decent burial for him because he had hoarded things for himself all of his life. He was more of a taker than not a giver. And I believe most of us want to be remembered fondly when we leave this earth. Amen. When people talk about us after we're gone, that they'll say good things and they will remember us in a good way. And I think Solomon's remembering what he's going to leave. Remember, his father David had left a great legacy, hadn't he? David was a man after God's own heart. David was a wonderful leader. And so maybe Solomon right here is saying, now what am I going to leave for Rehoboam and what am I going to leave for my other children? What kind of legacy am I going to leave? And so he brings us these thoughts in verses 1 through 12 here in the 7th chapter of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to look at seven ways, seven things that are necessary to leave a legacy that matters. And some of it's going to sound confusing, but I'm going to try to straighten it out a little bit this morning. First of all, there's the benefit of reputation. The benefit of reputation. Because look at what he says. A good name is better than precious ointment. Well, what are you talking about a good name? A good name is a name that has influence. A good name is a name that has character. A good name is a name that is remembered well when people hear that name or when people think about you. The precious ointment talks about a perfumed oil that was very expensive in that day. In another place, the scripture says a good name is to be desired above great riches. I would rather have a good name, a name for honesty, a name for integrity, a name for godliness rather than have just a whole lot of money. And so that's what the Word of God tells us. Someone said this, everybody has three names. Everybody has three names. You have the name that you were given at birth. You have the name that other people give you, maybe a nickname, as they know you as you grow. And then you have the name that you make for yourself as you live. And so how are we known? What kind of name are we known by? See, it's interesting how a name, a reputation, 
stays with somebody. You're going to know who I'm talking about when I talk about this lady, this woman, because she helped the spies of Israel in Jericho. She helped them escape when the king was looking for them. She was instrumental in the defeat of Jericho by Israel. She's in the line of the Messiah, but how do we often think of Rahab? Rahab the harlot. Now that's what she had been. And she came to know the Lord as Savior and she wasn't a harlot anymore, but every time we talk about Rahab, we refer to her as Rahab the harlot. That's the way she is identified. That name stayed with her. On the other hand, there's a woman. In fact, here's what Jesus said of this woman, and you're going to know who she is. Wherever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman had done be told for memorial of her. She took precious ointment and poured it over the head of Jesus. Very expensive, so much so that Judas, who by the way was the church treasurer, who held the bag, the scripture says, threw a fit over it. He said this could have been sold and given to the poor. Now Judas wasn't interested in the poor, by the way. Remember, he kept the money. And so I don't doubt that he was pilfering a little bit out of the bag. But anyway, he threw a fit because this, that's how expensive this ointment was. It was worth a year's salary. And she poured it over the head of Jesus. And her name is Mary. She's Mary of Bethany. She's Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And we always remember her fondly, don't we? It's interesting how a name stays with somebody. See, a good name is something that everybody can have. Now, some people want a name of being maybe a shrewd businessman, maybe a name of being a great actor, a great singer, a great speaker, maybe a great preacher. But listen, it's better to have a good name, a godly name, a precious reputation than to be any of those things. Amen. And you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be talented. You don't have to be a good orator to have a good name. And so the Word of God just says that a good name, a good reputation is better than even precious ointment or a lot of money. And then he brings us in chapter 1 to what I call the blessing of reality. There's the blessing, the benefit of reputation, but then there's the blessing of reality. What are you talking about, blessing of reality? You look at the end of verse 1, he says, the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. He said, preacher, that doesn't sound right. See, we cling on to life. Because we think of life from this human point of view. Now Solomon is not getting into this attitude that he's had before of, oh, you know, things are so terrible, I'd be better off dead, wish I'd never been. But that's not what he's saying here. He's actually saying the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Why in the world would you say that, Solomon? Well, first of all, for a child of God, we are better off. Now he's not telling us we need to run out and take our own lives, okay? You understand that. Please understand that. I don't want anybody to think otherwise. But what he's telling us is, look, when a child of God departs this life, where is he? To be absent from the body, the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen. There's something better than being in this body. And so, first of all, that makes the day of one's death better than the day of one's birth. You just look at Philippians 1. We haven't gotten there yet on Wednesday nights, but what did the apostle Paul say? He says, to depart and be with the Lord is better for me. Amen. He said, I am a straight in a straight betwixt two. Whether to go on and be with the Lord or whether to stay here with you. I'd rather go and be with the Lord. He said, but it's more needful that I stay. It's more needful that I live that I continue to teach and preach to you. And so 
again, he's not saying that we just need to say, well, we're going to end it all. But we need to understand with a proper understanding that there's something better that awaits us than this life. And aren't you glad there is? I dread the thought. Yeah, I don't dread, don't worry about death. I know where I'm going to go when I die. But I dread the thought of leaving my family behind and causing them that sorrow that always occurs when you lose a loved one. But again, there's something better and that's what Solomon is saying here. And here's the other thing. Because he's just talked about a good reputation, your reputation is not sealed until the day of your death. Until the day that you leave this earth. How we finish is much more important than how we start out. Preacher friend sent me this. I don't know if he was talking to me or just thought it was funny and wanted me to see it. He said, you're never too old to learn something stupid. (laughs) Or you're never too old to do something stupid. And that's true. And there are a lot of people who will have a good reputation and live a good life. And at the end of their life, they will destroy their reputation by foolishness, by doing things that they should not do. See, at birth, we get our name. As we live, we make our reputation. And when we depart this earth, we leave our reputation behind. Two examples right quickly. The Apostle Paul. You read about the way he started. How did he start out? Started out terribly. Well, what do you mean? Well, before he was the Apostle Paul, what did he do? He disrupted churches. He even had believers put in jail and believers killed. And then he was saved and God used him to write most of the New Testament to establish churches throughout the known world. And his reputation as we read, see when I read about Paul saying in the seventh chapter of Romans, for instance, that he has trouble with sin in his life, I just can't imagine that. I know he did, (laughs) but it's hard to imagine Paul and sin. It's hard to imagine Paul and fear. And so he finished great. There was another man. In fact, Paul wrote about him. His name is Demas. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed. But prior to that, you can read in, I believe it's Colossians and maybe in the book of Philemon, that Demas was a good servant of the Lord. He did not finish well. And so how do we think of Demas when we hear that name today? He is the man who quit serving God. It's never too late to do something stupid. You're never too old to learn something stupid. There are many foolish and unprofitable things with which we can involve ourselves as the people of God and destroy our reputations even in our old age. Between the day a person receives their name and the day that name shows up in the obituary column, they will determine if they leave behind a good reputation, if they leave behind a good name. Number three, there's the benefit of a reminder. The benefit of, what do you mean a benefit of a reminder? Well, look at what it says. It is better to go to the house of mourning, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to its heart. It's better to spend time at a funeral than at a festival. That's what he's saying. Well, why in the world would he say that? See, we live in a day of mirth. We live in a day when people would rather laugh than be serious. Now, he's not talking about an occasional funny, and and I I enjoy laughing. I have a problem with this part (laughs) of Ecclesiastes because I enjoy laughing. I enjoy the silly things sometimes. But there have to be those times, remember, He's not saying you shouldn't laugh. To everything there's a season, a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to laugh, a time to weep, a time to mourn, a time to dance. But there are times that we just need to be serious and we need to be serious minded. To be in the presence of sickness 
and death. You know what it's going to do? It's going to focus our minds on eternity. It's going to focus our thoughts on the end of life and the crucial issues of life. At a funeral service, we're reminded of the brevity of life. You know, when I preach a funeral service, that is a great opportunity to tell people that they need the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior because they're reminded of death. One of my most serious congregations or my most serious congregations have always been at a funeral service because people are, they're mourning, they've, they've lost a, a loved one. And he says here, and the, the living, he says, will lay it to heart. You go to a funeral service, again, you're thinking about life. Because James chapter 4, James said, what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for just a little time and then vanishes away. But most people today want to live like they're going to live forever. Have you ever noticed how we will purchase life insurance? Because we want our families to be taken care of, but then we don't want to talk about the need for eternal life assurance. People don't want to think about death. People don't want to think about dying. Somebody said this, a grave will preach a short sermon to the soul. And it will. Psalm 90 verse 12 says this, So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Teach us, Lord, through your word, through these things, through this time of a funeral service, a time of mourning instead of mirth, teach us to consider the brevity of life that we may grow in wisdom toward you. We live in a day, as I said, when most people would rather go to the house of feasting. And I don't think it's, it's exemplified any more than a song that came out in 1983. I had to look up the words to this song. The man who wrote it, the man who sang it, named Lionel Richie. And the song is all night long. And listen to the opening words of this song. Well, my friends, the time has come to raise the roof and have some fun. Throw away the work to be done. Let the music play on. We're going to party, karamu, fiesta forever. Come on and sing along. And I think with that, the party attitude among people is just grown and grown. Let's just party. Let's just have a big time. Let's not be too serious about anything, but the Word of God says you're better off to be serious and consider the end of life than to worry about partying. Solomon says there's something better for us and better for our reputation than continually laughing foolishly. So there's a reminder when we go to a funeral. Then, number four, there's the benefit of our refining. He says sadness has a refining influence on us. Have you ever thought about that? Sadness has a refining influence on us. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Not bitter, but better. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now that word blessed means happy. Have you ever thought about that? Happy are the people who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He said in John 16, he said, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Even in times of difficulty, in times of tribulation, in times of mourning, we can have great joy. It is impossible to live on the mountaintop forever. 
you get what I'm talking about? People want to live on the mountaintop. What's the mountaintop? It's good times. It's enjoyable times. We have a wonderful, wonderful worship service. People are stirred by the singing and by the preaching. And say, boy, we're on the mountaintop today. But I got news for you. What's on the other side of the mountaintop? There's a valley. That's why David said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. He knew even though you get to the mountaintop, you've got to come down. Years ago, I used to run races. I loved downhills. But for every downhill, there was an uphill. You know, you get to the top of the hill, you're going to go downhill. And that is life. And so, again, we can't live on the mountaintop. Somebody said this, sorrow is one of life's best teachers. Someone else said, sunshine every day makes a desert. If we just always had sun, never had any rain, we would soon be a desert. So you can't have sunshine every day. And what he's saying in verse 4 is a wise man will consider the brevity of life and prepare for death while the fool just thinks about having a good time right now. I'm just going to live for today. Well, okay, but don't just live for a good time for today. Live for serving God. I said people will buy life insurance. Do you realize that life insurance is a multi-trillion dollar industry in America? And so, again, you have people who say, well, I'm going to die, and I'm going to provide for my family, but I don't want to think about the spiritual aspects of death, what is going to happen to me after this life. I said I like to have fun, I like to laugh, but there are times that we have to give serious thought to the things of God and to the Word of God. Solomon's not saying, again, I, I quoted some of these verses, but Proverbs 17, verse 22, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. That's what he said in Proverbs. Proverbs 15, verse 13, a merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance. There's nothing wrong with being happy. There's nothing wrong with being merry. But we need to be serious also. And then there is the benefit of rebuke. The benefit of rebuke. Here Solomon compares the praise of fools to the burning of thorns in a campfire. We don't like to be rebuked, do we? I don't like for my wife to tell me I'm wrong. She doesn't do it very often. We don't like rebuke. We don't like for anybody to correct us. We don't like for anybody to tell us that we're wrong. Rebuke is instructing criticism. It is a reprimand. It is correction. David was rebuked by Nathan, wasn't he? David, after he had committed adultery and after he had committed premeditated murder, and that old preacher, Nathan, that prophet Nathan, I can just see him pointing right at David and saying, you're the man. You're the one that's guilty. Now, how did David respond to rebuke? He went out, he wept bitter. He knew what he had done. That conviction that we talked about this morning in Sunday school, when we've done wrong and we know we've done wrong, and that conviction, that bad feeling that we have, that got a hold of David when Nathan said, you're the man. So David was rebuked by Nathan. Remember, Paul rebuked Peter one time. Why did Paul rebuke Peter? Because Peter would hang out with the Gentiles until Jews showed up. And then Peter said, I'm going to be a Jew now and go and just hang out with the Jews and would have anything to do with the Gentiles. And Paul rebuked him over that. We don't like to be rebuked. And yet, rebuke is sometimes necessary. We all like to be praised. But listen to Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8. Reprove not a scorner. That's a scoffer, somebody that makes light, makes fun. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Fools don't like to be rebuked. They fight against rebuke. They will hate people for rebuking them, correcting them. 
I've seen in my life one of the best ways sometimes to lose a friend is just tell them the truth that they need to hear anyway. But if they're really a friend, they'll appreciate it at a later time. Wise people love to be corrected. Wise people want to know what's right and want to do what's right. That's what he's saying. And look at what he does. He calls the praise, or the word song is used here, the praise or the song of fools to the crackling of thorns under a pot. The word song here is a picture of a strolling minstrel just walking through town singing. And so we're singing praises, okay? But he says the praises of a fool are just, have you ever had a bunch of dry thorns? Or I think of pine straw. I used to throw pine, I love to throw pine straw on a fire. Because you know what happens? The old brown dried pine straw, you know what it does? It goes, you know, it, it'll flame up in a hurry. There'll be a big flame and it may make a crackling noise, but how long does it last? Not very long, does it? It flames up, it burns out. And that's what he's saying about what he calls here the song or the praise of fools. Praise is music to our ears. It's pleasant. We like to hear it. But sometimes coming from the wrong people in the wrong situation, the wrong, that's just like throwing pine straw on a fire. It's there and it's gone. Someone said it this way. And I've always liked this. Somebody, I learned this when I was in high school and I've known it all these years. Somebody told me one time, flattery, flattery is nothing but soft soap. And you've got to be country to understand this. Flattery is nothing but soft soap and soft soap's 90% lie. Okay, L-Y-E. Be careful of flattery. There are people who try to flatter us. Rebuke is better than praise if it comes from godly people and it's given with a godly attitude. With the right attitude, in the right spirit. Proverbs 6, verse 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the law is light and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. The commandment and the law talks about the word of God. And the instruction from the Word of God, correction from the Word of God, he says here is what? He says it is the instruction of the Word of God in the way of life. Corrective discipline. The way that we ought to live according to the Word of God. I don't know that we have a whole lot of preachers offering corrective discipline, corrective instruction today from the pulpit, but the Word of God is full of it. And if we'll read it and apply it to our lives, folks, we can live godly lives. The Word of God will show us our faults, and the Word of God will show us how to correct our faults if we will listen to it. If you're keeping score, this is number six. All right? There is the benefit of what I call end results. The benefit of end results. Now to consider this, we turn to the 73rd Psalm. One of my very favorite Psalms to talk about because Asaph is just plain. He's just honest as he writes here in this 73rd Psalm. And you listen to what he says. First of all, he just says that God's good to Israel. He points that out. But he says this. As for me, in verse 2, he says, As for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well not slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is the beginning of the matter. He looks out and he looks at people who won't serve God. He looks at people who don't want to acknowledge God. Who don't want to have anything to do with God. And they seem to have it all. They have prosperity. 
They don't have problems. By the way, if Satan's giving you a problem, thank God for it. You know, if Satan's bothering you and you're a child of God and you're trying to serve God and Satan's giving you a problem, that means you and Satan are going opposite directions. It's only when you go the same direction as the devil that you don't run into him, all right? But again, Asaph just looks at this and he says, man, what's going on here? I'm a child of God. Maybe I ought to be, you know, getting all these things that the, the foolish. And yet, it's the beginning of the matter. Matthew Henry points this out. If a wise man is oppressed for a long time, he is apt to speak and act unlike himself. You let a, even a good man, a righteous man, be oppressed for a long time, he may end up saying some things and acting in some ways he shouldn't act. Listen to Psalm 125 and verse 3. It says this, For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous, lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity just continually under that rod of oppression and, and difficulties and problems. That's why I prayed just a moment ago. I prayed that God would just give us a season of rest for all of the things that are happening to individual members of this church. We need that season of rest because I don't want anybody to turn away from God and turn to iniquity just because they're having troubles. Here's what Solomon's saying. Do not fret at the power and success of oppressors. Do not envy them. Why? Because, number one, the character of the oppressor is very bad. Here's somebody that goes from the reputation, having the reputation of being a wise person, and they become an oppressor. And the oppressor, and this is what he's saying in this verse, is ultimately considered to be a foolish man or to be a madman. He loses his reputation. And then he also says this, the gift or the bribes that he takes, the gain that he seeks to reap out of being an oppressor, of acting foolishly, destroys his heart. It extinguishes any sense of virtue that might remain in that heart. And so he just goes on off into his foolishness. The benefit of end results. And the reason I say that, because if you go back to Psalm 73 now, and you look down to verse 19, here's what Asaph found out when he went into the house of God, how are they brought into desolation as in a moment they're utterly consumed with terrors? He's talking about the foolish. He's talking about the people he had just been tempted to envy, okay? Verse 20, as a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Verse 21, thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by thy right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. The end of the foolish. What does he say? He says, God's brought them to desolation. He's put them in slippery places. The end of the righteous, they're going to be brought into the presence of God. The end result of a thing. By faith, we look to the end result. Don't look around today. Don't look at the world and say, oh, look at all these people that don't serve God, that are not faithful to God, and say, I want to have what they have. No, look to the end of things. And that's why he says in verse 9, see, I tried to figure out why does verse 9 fit in with this, but what does he say in verse 9? 
Well, look at what he says there. He says, be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. And he always saying, don't have a quick temper. Don't look around at all these folks that are not serving God and getting all this stuff and get mad at God. Or get mad at them. Or get mad at yourself. Don't have a quick temper. Don't go flying off the handle, child of God. That's what he's saying. Because... First of all, he says such activity will label you as being a fool. He said that kind of attitude, that kind of reaction rests in the bosom of fools. Have you ever seen in a public place somebody just completely lose it and lose their temper and fly off the handle? What do you think of them when you watch somebody out in the public acting like a fool? Well, probably you think they're acting like a fool and may even think that they are fools. And then there is the benefit of remembering rightly. Say not thou what is the cause that the former days were better than these. Oh, the good old days. I want to live in the good old days. Why, preacher, I can remember when the church house was full. Why isn't it full today? Well, partly because we're not inviting people today the way they did in the good old days. I remember when the church house was full and I remember at the end of every service they'd give the invitation and people would walk the aisle and so forth and so on. And I remember the good old days. Someone said this about the good old days. The good old days are often a combination of a bad memory and good imagination. Amen. We'd like to remember things better than they actually were. <coughs> and so we need to... Just be careful about remembering things rightly. See, one of these days, these will be the good old days to people who follow us. You ever thought about that? That's sort of scary, isn't it? Yeah. These will be the good old days. Why well, I can remember back when. We can't live back then. We can't live in tomorrow and we can't live in yesterday. When do we live? We live in today. Matthew Henry said this, Thou art so much a stranger to the times past. Isn't that true? We can talk about it, but we, if we didn't live in those times, we're a stranger to them. And such an incompetent judge, even of the present times, that thou canst not expect a satisfactory answer to the inquiry. We don't even know what's going on today. And yet we want to come up with the answer. I told you Wednesday night, I heard a sermon last Monday and I hadn't gotten over it yet. I love that message. And I may have to pull it up and listen to it again. From the seventh chapter of the book of Joshua, but there's a perfect example about what happens when you start remembering the good old days. You remember Joshua and Israel had crossed the Jordan. They had defeated Jericho. They decided to go up against a little military outpost called Ai. Wasn't much. They said, let's not send everybody. Let's just send a few and go up and defeat Ai. And they lost the battle and 36 innocent men lost their lives. By the way, we know why. That was because of Achan and his sin. Listen, one person, one person and their sin can hurt a church. Amen. Achan cost 36 innocent men their lives. Okay? We're not going to do this, but they took him out and stoned him to death, him and his family. But again, they go up against Ai and they're defeated and Joshua is on his face before God. And listen to what he says in Joshua chapter 7 verse 7. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore or why hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? 
Would to God we'd have been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. He gets over there, he's got a problem. They get defeated at Ai and Joshua says, I remember the good old days when we were back on the other side of Jordan. Remember how wonderful it was? But what was the problem with them being on the other side of Jordan? They weren't in the land that God had promised them. They weren't where God wanted them. But see, he wanted to remember the good old days. And he just, he starts accusing God. He's going to live in uh, discontentment. Look at what it says when we try to live in the good old days here in verse 10. For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Living in the good old days make us discontent or has a tendency to make us discontent with what God's doing right now. Oh, it's not like it was. Remember when uh, Zerubbabel's temple was built? The young men rejoiced. Man, they're, they're full of joy. The temple has been rebuilt. But what did the old men say? Not like the one of Solomon's days, not like the original temple. And some were weeping and some were rejoicing. So much so the scripture says you couldn't tell the difference. Because some wanted to think of how it was and some were just happy that it was like it is right now. Folks, God has always been good. And men have always been sinful, haven't they? And if in some ways the times are worse now than they have been, in other ways they are better. Let me just give you a real quick history of this preacher. I had to write it down so I could remember it. First church I pastored, I bought a mimeograph machine. Remember those? Some young folks won't know what those are. I bought a mimeograph machine. You had to type out the stencil, put it on the machine, and crank the handle and run the paper through just to have a bulletin for the church. Well, then we got really uptown because we got a liquid toner copier. Now, those were a mess too. Remember them? And they didn't always make the best copy, the clearest copy. But I thought we were really somewhere when we got this liquid toner copier. Now, I'm typing the bulletin on a manual typewriter. But then I was able to purchase a used IBM Selectric with the interchangeable type heads. Man, I can type in this font or one that looks like an italic font. I've got it made now. Then we got a dry toner copier. Woo, these bulletins are going to look fantastic. I don't think I've saved any of those, by the way. Then I went to computers. Got a VIC-20 computer. Now, I don't know what all to say about a VIC-20, but it thrilled me because I now had a computer. I upgraded from a VIC-20 to a Commodore 64. Woo, man, there's so much memory on this thing. I can buy these hard drives to put on and had this Commodore, I'm really up to, lightning struck outside our house and wiped out both of the hard drives on the Commodore 64, but dad had an IBM AT computer, and so I borrowed that for a while. Had to learn MS-DOS and this kind of stuff just to do anything. And then, and then I got my own PC, and it had Windows 3.0 on it. Okay, I am uptown. It's got a couple of megabyte memory around. I'll never fill this hard drive up. 
Well, today I've got a computer that does what I need to do, and it's I've got all these external hard drives and stuff. See, we want to look back at all the good old days. Folks, those good old days were not good old days. <laughs> not compared to where I am today. And there's the benefit of remembering things rightly. Yes, it was we were able to do what we needed to do, but we can do it so much better today, and maybe 10 years from now we can do it even better than that. And so Solomon closes all this out with verses 11 and 12. Because remember, this is about leaving a legacy. That's what this message is about. A legacy of faith and faithfulness to others and especially leaving that legacy to our families. What do I want my family to learn, my children to learn? And in order to leave that kind of legacy, our lives must be right with God. Amen. Proverbs 23, 7 tells us this. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Our thinking's got to be right. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. See, Romans chapter 12, verse 3 tells us that we are to cultivate this attitude of sobriety. He said that we need to think soberly. Titus chapter 2, verse 12 instructs us to live soberly with a serious attitude toward life. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to have fun. But have a serious attitude toward life and death and what comes afterwards. In order to live soberly, you have to think soberly. Amen. You can't say, well, I'm going to think foolishly and I'm going to live soberly. They don't go together. So here's what Solomon says again in verses 11 and 12. He says, wisdom's good with an inheritance. <laughs> Wisdom and money are good. That's what he's saying. Look, wisdom is good with an inheritance. By it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense. And then he says, and money is a defense. That word defense talks about a shade. Imagine being in the Middle East. There, even down, we're told in the summertime down around Jericho, the temperature will get to 110 in the shade. Well, you'd rather be in the shade than out, you know, in the sun. And so a defense, a shade, is talking about a defense. And he says, yes, money is a defense. And I'm so glad to see a verse here in the Word of God because I know that money is not the root of all evil. Amen. People say that. It says in 1 Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evil. There's nothing wrong with money. And if God blesses you with money, thank God for it. Use it to serve Him. But he says money is a defense. And so is wisdom. Look at what he says. The excellency of knowledge is this, that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. In other words, the benefit of wisdom is that it preserves life. Amen. I want to be a wise person, and I want to leave wisdom to my children. Throughout this message, we've focused on things that are better. A good name is better than great riches. The day of death better than the day of birth. The house of mourning better than the house of mirth. And in every case, the wise person has chosen that which is better. And the wise person will choose that which is better. Funerals rather than frivolity. Friction rather than flattery. Forbearance rather than fantasy. Life under the sun. 
will never be perfect. And life under the sun will never be easy. But if we choose that which is better, okay? If we choose that which is better, we will praise God for everything that he does for us and we will give ourselves in service to him. Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul prayed this or had this request of those to whom he wrote. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Better. As children of God, we should always choose that which is better in the service of God. I want a good name. When the Lord gets ready to call me home, I want to go home, but I want to leave a good name behind. I don't want to get so frivolous in this world that I forget that there's life after this life and fail to tell somebody about Christ. I don't want to get caught up in people patting me on the back and saying, good sermon or good job or, or good preacher or you know whatever so that my head gets so big it can't fit through a doorway, you know. Amen. Sometimes I rebuke myself and I need it, <laughs> you know. I, I, I just want to be and, and always strive to be better, better. But I'll never be perfect. None of us will be. But we can all strive to be better in the service of God. Amen.